Good morning. Please be seated. I want to welcome you all here this morning. Glad that you joined us. We're concluding our uh, summer series in the Psalms with Psalm 146. And you know, it's been a real blessing for me to sit under Sam's preaching and, and to learn and grow uh, in the Psalms. I've never been part of a series in the Psalms, and so it's been a real honor for me to uh, jump in and dive into some of these Psalms. And so we, we hope and pray that, that you truly have been blessed through this series, that it helped to lift your minds and hearts heavenward to God, who is both great and good, who is holy and who is love, who is truth and also full of grace and mercy. I pray that you've been able to see that even in his greatness and his perfection that he's caring for you in your deepest trial and his heart is always compassionate towards you. He always longs to be in relationship with you. To give you a little background on the psalm today, Psalm 146 contains nothing that clearly identifies the author. Thus, we cannot be sure who wrote it or the exact context of the psalm. Modern scholars tend to think that it's David, while Jewish tradition ascribes it jointly to the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and in my studies, I lean towards the latter. Psalm 146 begins the first of five psalms that conclude the final book and are known collectively as the Hallelujah Psalms. Scholar James Montgomery Boyce writes, in the earlier psalms, we have studied the writer's griefs, shames, sins, doubts, and fears. We've witnessed the people of God in defeats and victories. Both are ups and downs in life. We've encountered rebellious words and struggling faith, but all this is behind us now. In these final psalms, every word is praise. And I want to give you a few examples of that. In Psalm 147. He determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. Great is the Lord and mighty in power. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving and make music to our God with the heart. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all the heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the saints. Let them praise his name with dancing, with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. And Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. It's important to note that some scholars believe that these final five psalms identified as the Hallelujah Psalms were written Uh, after the Israelites were exiled from their land, at a time when some of the things they praised God for weren't reflected in their life experience. At the time, they had no king. There was no land that was their own. They were actually living as strangers in a foreign land. They had a rebuilt temple that was simple and plain compared to the glory of the first. There was corruption in the temple priests. There was very little faith and godliness that was being exemplified. There wasn't a whole lot of good that was surrounding their lives. And yet the writers who were in the midst of these circumstances wrote hallelujah psalms to God. 
which tells us that praise is not so much about our current life circumstances, but is about the object of our faith. We choose to praise God for his unchanging nature and character, that he is always the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he is always all-knowing, all-wise, and all-powerful, that he is always great and good, and that he is always holy and love personified. So let's go ahead and read the first of the five hallelujah psalms, and in your Bibles, turn to Psalm 146. We're going to go ahead and read the whole psalm. And I'm actually reading from the NIV, which will uh, match up pretty well with the Bible that you have. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. So the psalmist begins with, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, I will praise the Lord all my life, I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Our psalm begins with the word, praise the Lord. It's in plural form addressed to the entire congregation. This phrase in the English language is translated in the Hebrew as just one word, hallelujah. Broken up, that hal means praise, and yah is the name for God, Yahweh. In other words, they're saying praise Yahweh. An English word often connected to praise is the word worship, which means to venerate or honor, to declare one's worth. And if you remember in a previous message, I said that if you notice that the Lord is capitalized. And as I stated in that previous message, I wanted you to notice that because in the Hebrew, it's translated Yahweh, the special name that God used to express who he is. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But when God entered into a covenant relationship with Moses and the people of Israel, he identified himself as Yahweh, the great I am, the eternal sovereign God who can be trusted. Praise of Yahweh is not based on the current condition of our life. It's not based on our ever-changing circumstances, but on the unchanging nature and character of God, for he never ceases to be worthy of our praise. If our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we can proclaim that God's majesty never changes, that God's goodness never changes, that he is always great and he is always good. God's absolute moral perfection never changes. He's always holy. He can never sin or do evil. God's infinite love never changes. It never runs out. It never runs dry. It's never diminished in the least. God's absolute power, wisdom, and knowledge, it never changes. He is always sovereign. He is always able. He always knows all and knows what is best. God's word is always true. He is always faithful to his promises. This alone is the basis for our never-ending praise. The writer of the psalm begins by exhorting his readers to praise the Lord, and then he moves to exhorting himself. He's telling himself, praise the Lord, O my soul. 
Life can be just plain out hard. It can be difficult, it can be stressful, it can be wearying. And we often need to daily remind ourselves during those times that God is still worthy of our praise. The beauty of it is when we move to praise God in the midst of our difficulties, it often awakens us to new hope and possibilities that we cannot see when we're stuck in the muck and the mire of life. The easy part of praise is telling God how wonderful he is as we sing songs to him on Sunday morning. But praise of God is always intended to be a lifestyle of praise. Telling other people how wonderful he is. Telling the world, even hostile people toward God, how wonderful he is. And then backing it up with our lives. I can tell my wife, Lisa, she's wonderful. I can tell others how wonderful my wife is. But if it's not backed up with loving action towards her each day, my words of praise ring hollow. And it's the same with God. When we praise God with our soul, we will be praising him with all we are. It is to engage our mind, our intellect, and reason. It is to stir the emotions within us, which leads to exuberant joy, even when we don't feel like it. When my emotions say otherwise, I will praise the Lord. It's to move our will. It involves obedience. It's to require effort. Our bodies are involved and will be engaged through expression and action. It's always rooted in God's revelation of himself. I will praise God. I will honor God through my thought life, through the words I speak, through my discretionary time, through my work, my relationships, my marriage, my family, how I treat others, how I serve at home and at church, and how I sing songs on Sunday morning. My entire life is about praising the Lord. When we are offering ourselves in praise and worship of God, we are offering all of ourselves. The declarations of the psalmist reflect this. He says, I will praise the Lord all my life. Every single day with all my being, I will praise the Lord. Regardless of what is happening to me or what's happening in the world around me, I will praise the Lord. He says, I will sing praise to God as long as I live. And you know, what's stored up in our hearts and souls, it's always going to come forth through our lips. The good or the bad we store there will come out in our words. Jesus told his followers out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when we're storing a bunch of ugly stuff in our hearts, like resentments or judgment or critical negative thinking, anger, jealousy, envy, worry, or fear, it's really difficult to praise God on Sunday mornings, much less with our lives. You must allow God to clean that nasty stuff out of your heart for a lifestyle of praise to break forth. Singing praises to our God is not based on our abilities. And I'm very thankful that God's word says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, because I can do that. Many of you who sat around me on Sunday, even this morning, know I can do that. Singing praises to our God is not about stirring our emotions or making us feel good, but it's about pleasing God with our heartfelt worship. It's always about honoring him. It's not about us. The psalmist declares that from my childhood to my deathbed, I will praise the Lord for he is always worthy to be praised. The psalmist then moves in his thoughts to a contrast between what he calls princes in the CSB, it says nobles and God. It's as if he's asking us two questions. In whom do you place your trust and your hope? 
And who is truly worthy of your trust and your hope? In verses 3 and 4, it says, Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. So the writer begins his contrast comparing princes to the Lord. And he says, do not trust in princes. By the way, that's my gorgeous grandson. Or no, that's my granddaughter. Oh, that's my grandson. See, I'm mixed up because I got a new grandson and a new granddaughter. Not many of us in the U.S. can uh, relate to living under royalty. Princes, kings, or queens. And I have to admit, I don't get people in our country and why they are so enamored with the royals of Great Britain. You know, I don't want to offend anybody, but they just seem to be a family of entitled people with little to no responsibilities who live fairy tale lifestyles. Oh, I just gave the reason, didn't I? <laughs> but what the psalmist is talking about princes here is generally referring to people in high positions, influential people, people of power, people in authority, rich, gifted, talented, educated people. The psalmist, in a sense, asks, why are you placing your trust and hope in these people? He goes on and says, in mortal men who cannot save. Men and women in positions of power and authority pretend as if they have sovereign control over nature and agriculture, over plagues and viruses, over economic forces, the character of the workforce, the moral condition of men's hearts, but there is no lasting help to be found in princes. They're finite in their wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. They're fallen, sinful human beings, just like you and I. They can be corrupted by greed, power, and the desire to control, and they can never fulfill all their promises. They cannot bring salvation or spiritual revival. They cannot even legislate morality or turn the citizens of a culture's hearts towards God. Without God's intervention, these people in positions of authority are completely incapable of controlling the forces inside and outside of their nations to deliver peace, prosperity, health, and salvation. That's the reason the psalmist gives for not trusting princes. They cannot save. And he goes on and, and says that when their spirits departs, they return to the ground. Every person in position of status, power, and authority will die. They will return to the dust from which they came, and when they do, the psalmist says, on that very day, their plans come to nothing. He's saying their plans die with them. And then someone else steps up who believes they know what's best and often changes everything. And we've seen it time and time again in our nation. Over the last 50 years, from President Nixon to President Biden, we have had 10 different presidents alternating Republican and Democrat. And for years, Christians have placed their trust in some of these men, believing that getting the right man or woman in office, that person will instill, finally, biblical moral values back to our culture, will stem the tide of immorality and lead our country back to God, achieving prosperity and peace for us all. Let me ask you, after 50 years, how do you think that's worked out for us in our country? Has our country turned to God? Has it become more moral? Listen, I'm not saying that this is unimportant. 
Christians should vote for those people who they believe align best with their biblical convictions of right and wrong. And as a Christian, I believe you are a person of the word and should vote according to which candidate's policies most closely reflect those beliefs. Unfortunately, it all too often feels like a choice between the lesser of two evils. But one author said, sadly, too many Christians today place more hope in Capitol Hill than Calvary's Hill. How is it that we have gotten to this place where we place our trust in and around and our hope in princes and we're more passionate about and we talk more about and have more Facebook postings about who is or who isn't in office or who we want to be than the God who rules and reigns with wisdom and justice forever? The God alone who can save. And if that is you, I want to share with you a few things I've come to believe to be true. According to the Bible, the book that is to guide our lives, God is sovereign over all. He always rules and reigns from on high. God raises and deposes kings and princes and presidents and nations and governments. God moves the hearts of kings like channels of water. This means that God allows both good kings and evil kings to reign on earth. And you say, how can that be? How could a good God raise up an evil king? God is righteous and holy. God does not sin, nor does he attempt to sin. But the scriptures do declare that our God works all things together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. That means all people. That means all circumstances. That means all suffering and pain. It means all leaders. You see, because of the fall, we live in a world that is under a curse, a world wracked by sin, a world full of evil. And from the very beginning, God placed human beings in a perfect, sinless planet without evil and gave every human being the free will to choose good or evil, to obey him or disobey him, to submit or rebel against him or trust or reject him. All sin is our attempt to be our own gods, to dictate our own happiness apart from God, to try to control our own destiny. This became Adam and Eve's desire and led to their sin, and it has become the desire of us all. And as a world increasingly rejects God and abandons his ways, God will allow wicked kings to rule, and human beings will inflict pain and suffering on one another. He doesn't abandon us or turn his back on us. Do you know how I am certain of that? It's because if God abandoned us and we were left alone by God to our own devices, this planet would most certainly become hell on earth. There would be no love in this world because the scriptures declare that God is love and love comes from God. There would be nothing that is good because the scriptures declare that every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And you know how else I know that God has not turned his back on us? the cross. God willingly chose to interject himself into the mess that we made. It's not the mess that he's made. It's the mess that we made and continue to make of the perfect world he once gave us. I stopped blaming God a long time ago for what's wrong in the world because I see clearly that what ails this world is you and me. It's my sin. It's your sin. It's people following the path of Adam and Eve, refusing to trust God, rejecting God, living outside of his prescribed boundaries, trying to be their own gods, trying to find happiness apart from God, trying to control their own destinies. They live selfishly for themselves, and they inflict pain on themselves and one another. 
And God's purpose in all of this wickedness is to turn people's hearts towards him. To drive us to our desperate need for him, to place our trust and dependence on him, to get us to see and understand that he alone can save us from this mess. Are you starting to see a little more clearly why we can't trust princes to do what only God can do? Some of you placed your trust in Donald Trump to save this country. Others of you believe Donald Trump was an evil king. Either way, God raised him up. Some of you are trusting Joe Biden's going to turn around and lead the country in the right direction, the opposite direction of Trump. Others of you believe that he's an evil king. Either way, God raised him up. God allowed both of these men to be in office. If we believe that God works all things together for good, then the question must be asked, what is excluded from all things? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing in this world that God will not use to accomplish his eternal plan of redemption and restoration of all things. And according to the scriptures, hi buddy. One of these days I'm going to talk to you about this. So according to the scriptures, both men, Trump and Biden, are part of God's eternal purpose plan. Neither man can thwart his plan. Both men will be used by God towards his ends. And it's the same with the kings and princes of China and Russia and North Korea. You see, all leaders are sinful, all leaders are fallen, all leaders are tempted just by being in their position of power to use that position for personal gain, greed, more power, and more control. And it's all the rest of our sinful tendency to look to human leaders to save us, to make everything better. That's why Israel cried, God, give us a king. It's why Christians look to them to bring morality and Christian values and to change our culture for the better. If we truly believe that God is sovereign and that he raises it up and brings down leaders and nations and government in his sovereign knowledge and wisdom towards his eternal purpose and plan, then we can say that God raised up every president we've ever had and placed them over our country. Otherwise, we're saying, well, on that given day, God must have just been busy with something else and he had his back turned and this guy just kind of slipped in. And we know that's not what happened. God has infinite and absolute knowledge and wisdom of all things from beginning to end. The world from beginning to end is his idea. It's his creation made for his eternal purpose and plan. He knows every single cog, every single person, every historical happening, event, and circumstance. Every human ruler, every nation fits and is being used to achieve his eternal ends. It's impossible for us to see the big picture, to see the full picture throughout all of time. It's impossible for you to understand every part of God's story from beginning to again. I mean, it's impossible for us even to understand our own story, isn't it? Much less to understand the world from the beginning of time. So how is it that we could even get to a place where we think, that we know better than God. That we know what God should do, who God should place as prince over us. And if we were God, we would surely do it differently. 
Pray to the God from whom our help comes. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our country. Pray that God would turn the hearts of our citizens towards him. Vote your biblical convictions, but pray even more that the church would find its hope in the Lord finally and would become truly salt and light in the world and that you and I would bring the love and truth of God to those who are lost and need him. That's what it's all about, not who's in that office. Stop trusting in any human being to do what only God can do. Let's move on to verses 5 and 6. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. And that word blessed, it's the Hebrew word eser, which can mean happy. And I think in the CSB, it does say happy. But I believe the word joyful would be even a better translation. We've kind of cheapened the word happy by overuse over trivial things. That piece of chocolate cake really made me happy. (laughs) Or last night as we had some friends over, that um, peach cobbler and vanilla ice cream really made me happy. But the very best translation for the word Hebrew, for the word Easter, I believe, is blessed. Listen to what the translators of the NIV say in regard to the meaning of the word blessed that Jesus used over and over in his teaching on the Beatitudes. The word means more than happy because happiness is an emotion often dependent on outward circumstances. Blessed here refers to the ultimate well-being and distinctive spiritual joy of those who share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. And while both the words in the Greek, in the Beatitudes, and the word here in Psalm in the Hebrew basically is saying that the blessed life is rooted in the redemptive work and promises of the Lord. The psalmist identifies God as the God of Jacob. Often God is known to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, referring to the covenant God of Israel. The author is likely appealing to the memory of and the content of the Abrahamic covenant where God promised to provide a land which they could dwell with innumerable descendants and ultimately the coming of the future Messiah. All the promises that the Israelites now who in exile would need to hear to remain hopeful in their God. But I also believe that Jacob is singled out here, the God of Jacob, to emphasize that God is a God of grace. Jacob was known as a conniver and a deceiver, always trying to manipulate people and circumstances to his own advantage. And yet God chose him over his brother Esau to be honored, the one to carry on the Messiah's lineage. Jacob's heart was eventually humbled and broken as he wrestled with God and through it all walked through life with a limp, which was more evidence of God's grace and proof that when Jacob was weak through God, he could be strong. Jacob had to be truly emptied of his pride, arrogance, and deceitful self-will before he could be of any use to God. Charles Spurgeon wrote, The Lord pours into those who are most empty of self. Those who have the least of their own shall have the most of God. The foundation of the whole biblical story is God's deep covenantal relationship with his creation. God will not forsake. God will not let go of the world he made. And he will one day redeem and restore it all to his original intentions. And the psalmist continues by saying, you should trust the Lord, not princes, because he's the maker of all things. We praise God not for what is going on in his creation at any given time, but we praise him because he made it all. 
When we trust him as creator of all things, we realize he has the power to help us and deliver us that even the greatest of men do not have. So when it comes down to placing your trust and hope, are you trusting in the created or in the creator? Then he says that you should place your trust and hope in the Lord because the Lord remains faithful forever. And the CSB says he keeps truth forever. This means God is and always will be of this disposition towards his children, loyal and steadfast in devotion, affection, and allegiance, always true to his words and his promises and his vows, always reliable, dependable, and trustworthy. He can never be swayed by your attitude, your behavior, or performance, because the scriptures declare that even when we're unfaithful, God is still faithful. Throughout the series in the Psalms, we wanted to show you how each one pointed back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there isn't a more fitting way to close out this series than to fix our eyes on him. Let's read verses 7 through 9. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The words that the psalmist uses here describes the ministry of the Lord, and they're similar to the words that the prophet Isaiah used in a messianic prophecy, which I want to read, declaring what the future ministry of the Savior would be. Isaiah 3 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19, Jesus unrolled a scroll in the temple and he actually read these words from the scroll, the scriptures in the temple, and he says this to his hearers, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And we know that through the reading of the four Gospels, we see Jesus fulfilling these very words. For he fed the hungry miraculously, and he healed the blind and the lame. He raised dead people to life. He set those imprisoned by demons free. He lifted up the spirits of the marginalized and the rejected, and frustrated the self-righteous while loving his own to the very end. Jesus fulfilled that messianic prophecy that was written sometime 750 to 1,000 years before Jesus even came to the planet. But let us not forget the spiritual implications of this ministry of Jesus in our lives. For he is the God who has, by his saving grace, rescued us from the prison of hell, has removed the penalty of sin from our lives and declared us not guilty, has set us free from the power of sin and its destructive consequences, has given us spiritual food and drink to satisfy our deepest inner longings, has comforted us and provided for us and lifted us up when we have been laid low. And we must never forget that he has passed this gospel ministry on to us as his followers. Matthew 25, 34 through 40 says, Then the king will say to those who are his, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. 
I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, when did we do these things for you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of these, the least of mine, you did for me. This is why as a church, we choose to support and bring the good news of Christ's gospel ministry to the hurting and the lost in our neighborhoods. To those in addiction to alcohol, drugs, and sex through the programs that we offer in this facility. To the elderly and lonely residents of West County Care Center. To immigrants and refugees through Oasis Refugee Ministries. To women in crisis pregnancy through our support of Birthright. To women in prison through the Broken and Beautiful Ministry. To single moms and their families through Ellisville Elementary School. To underprivileged kids through Christmas shoeboxes and through the children's feeding program in Columbia, South America. To those women who have been enslaved through sex trafficking through When the Saints Ministry. And all of this, all of this is that we want to point people to Jesus. We don't do any of this to try to earn God's favor. We don't try to do any of this to earn our salvation. We do this because the love the Lord has showed us, we want to share with others in the hope of not just meeting through service their physical needs, but in hope that they would see the love of Jesus and be drawn to him. I believe Christ is calling every person here today and every person listening online to actively engage in one or more of these ministries with their time, their service, and financial support. I don't care if you're an elementary school kid. I don't care if you're a teenager. I don't care if you've got a bunch of kids. I don't care if you're a senior. You should be involved in this because to the day we breathe our last breath, this is the mission and the ministry that God has given his people. Be in prayer and watch the calendar for future opportunities. And I want to put a monthly newsletter together that's going to highlight each of these mission points so that you know what's happening, what God's doing, so we can know how to pray for them, so you can know how to financially support them. And when opportunities arise, whether you see them in the bulletin or you see them on our calendar, you're going to see opportunities for you to get involved. So I ask you to be in prayer about those things now. Chris, why don't you come on up? You know, the final thing that the psalmist says before he enters into the closing verse of prayer is he says, God frustrates the ways of the wicked. And sometimes it seems as if the wicked get away with everything, doesn't it? And we wonder, where is God? That there will be a day when God's eternal plans will come to fruition where all things will be brought together as he intended them to be. And on that day, justice will be realized for one and all. All evil will be judged and abolished forever. And oh, how I long for that day. To close the service this morning, we're not going to have a time of reflection. Stephen, if you'd put the verse up on the screen for me. I want you to all stand with me. And we're going to read verse 10 as a way of closing out the Summer of Psalms. And we want to read it as if we really believe what the words declare. Read it with me. The Lord reigns forever, Zion. Your God, O Zion, for all generations, praise the Lord. Let's do it one more time. The Lord reigns forever, 
Zion, your God. Oh, Zion, for all generations, praise the Lord. Amen. I think it's the most fitting thing to do to close out the service before we get to the deacons is uh, a song of praise.